Hi, this is Tony Ruggiero. Thanks for listening to The Tour Coach. These are the players, coaches, experts, stories, and insights from my work on the PGA Tour at my retreats or my downtown teaching center in Mobile, Alabama. My goal is to shed light and share insights from the people who I've gotten to know and meet working on the PGA Tour and teach it through my career. And I hope this helps all of us play, coach, and teach better golf. If you like what you hear, please give us a good review and take a look at our new Dew Sweepers YouTube channel or the Dew Sweeper on Instagram, where I've taken some time to share videos of help from my teachings, travels, and journeys. So this edition of the Tour Coach, joining me here once again, the second time, my good friend and one of the truly embodies the tour coach because I see him about every time I'm out. Every time I talk to him, he's somewhere in the world coaching tour players from Houston, Texas, Mr. Kevin Kirk. What's up, Kev? What's up, Tony? These are normally chats are more fun if we're sitting having glasses of wine, but we're refined to doing this, confined to doing this during the day at a reasonable hour where if I had a glass of wine, somebody would probably talk. So Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, think, uh, I think that, uh, you know, that uh, the invitation over wine is always hard to pass up, especially at the end of a long day of work. But it's always a pleasure to speak with you, and I really appreciate you having me on the show. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I, what I really wanted to talk about is you and I have spent a lot of time over the past couple months talking about some things that we would like to do together. But, but in the midst of that of, is our passion, and in particular your passion, for developing players and, and how to develop players of all skill levels, and but in particular young players coming up. And I thought that'd be a good, you know, really what's the gateway, if you will, for development for players that want to get better. You've got some great ideas, some great opinions about it. A lot of my thoughts kind of mirror some of the things that you think and do. And I thought it'd be great because we have so many teachers. The thing that always surprised me about this podcast is how many teachers listen to it. You know, and I get emails and direct messages every week from teachers that ask questions. And so I think this is a great topic because it's important for, the, for our game to be able to develop people. And so let's talk a little bit about your thoughts about how, how you really develop talent and how you really develop golfers. Yeah, I mean, I think player development is really kind of what golf instruction and, and, the, and the, the craft that, we're in, that we do on a, on a daily basis is really all about. It's to, you know, I think looking at, developmental sports science. I mean, there's some been some really cool modeling that's been done. I mean, the first really solid model I ever saw was was the long-term athlete development model that, that the East Fund Bali put together, and I still use it as kind of my, my benchmark and kind of for, you know, my, my go-to for when I'm trying to make decisions or do programming. And um, it just gives, you know, kind of a, a general idea about, you know, watching what type of developmental stages people kind of go through uh, particularly the youth, and um, uh, then some of the newer thought around development is it really expanded to include really the entire population, the entire golf population. That includes uh, you know the recreational players, seniors, people that are you know just just actually trying to you know top golf people. I mean, really trying to kind of branch out and and try to focus on, on developing developmental platforms for people of a lot a lot. It's just a much wider river that we're looking at now. So exciting time for sure. And for anybody that's in the golf business and we create the ton of opportunity and uh, super excited about it and super passionate about it. You talk about, you know, the new stuff and expanding the scope where it's not just developing juniors, but golfers of all skill levels. And I have found and recently that I've had more and more, you know, for a long time, Kevin, I just had, I had lots of good juniors come to me, but I have found more and more I'm having, 
40, 50, 60 year old people come to me that are very passionate about getting better that say, you know, I've, I've done this, I've done that, I've taken less. I really want to plan and I really want to get better. So I think that there is, and I don't know if I'm just starting to get more of them, but there seems to be a lot of those golfers out there right now that are hungry for programs and for a way to re- not just take a lesson, but a plan to really get better. Yeah, I think that, you know, developmental developmental coaching is really, is you know, should, can, can and should be applied to really players of all levels. You know, I may think whether it's a, mm-hmm. a person just getting started, whether they're young, you know, as an adult or senior, doesn't really matter, kind of their, their starting point. And then to be able to take them through, you know, getting them started and then moving in, you know, from a, from a complete novice to maybe a beginner and from a beginner to an intermediate player, from an intermediate player to advanced and advanced to elite. I mean, there's a, there's a clear, you know, set of things that, that have to happen as, as players move down that, that pathway. The, the crazy thing about it is, in spite of the fact that there's these, these benchmarks and these, these general guides, no two people are exactly alike. And some people right. are pretty content just being a, a beginner golfer their whole life. And if that's the case, then that's great. It's our job to, to make sure that they, they can enjoy the game, you know, on their own terms. And, and then our art, and we, we have the capacity to, to, to be able to, to help them do that and you know, not to try to, you know, over teach them or teach them things they don't want to learn. Uh, so a lot of it has to do with spending time with the, with the people that come and see us and try to figure out exactly you know, a little bit about their golf story, you know, where, where they are today and where they want to go. And then we become the, they're kind of the developmental Sherpa, so to speak, to try to take them down that path. I'll never forget early in my teaching career, I've told you I'd worked for Hank Johnson, great older teacher. And, and he said something to me, he said, uh, you know, to may always make sure you ask the student, you know, what they want and what their goals are. Because I would just always assume that, like, if a person comes to lesson, they just want to shoot better scores. But that's not always the case. Some people come because they want to hit it further. Some people want, you know, I mean, everybody wants different things. And if we just go into it assuming that every player wants to become the best player they can or a great player or whatever, I mean, we miss the boat on some things. Like you said, there's some golfers that come to us just because they just want to learn to enjoy it more or they want to get better at they want to hit it a little further or whatever. It's it's really important to understand what the student wants, I think. Yeah, I think it's, you know, if you're going to be a successful coach, I think it's, you know, it's imperative that you kind of figure out, you know, to the, to the point earlier, you know, kind of where they've been and where they are currently and, and specifically what it is they want to accomplish. And, they, and that may change over time, and that's okay. But mm-hmm. you got, if you're going to be able to help them, you need to, need to, you know, slow down and make sure you've got enough information to be able to, to give them the right, the right dosage, the right frequency of, of coaching and all the things they're going to need to, to accomplish what it is they're trying to accomplish. So. When it comes to dosage and quantity and the frequency people come to see you at, because we get that question a lot, how do you establish that? Like, how do you figure out what a person needs? It's interesting. I think people are all, all kind of different. I have some people that I coach that they're pretty happy to kind of come in, take some information, and then go off and then just grit it out for a while with it. They, 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 they like that. that. That's their process. It seems like it works better. And then I have other people that like, that need more touch time. They need more, more, uh, they need more, they have more questions come up and they, they can, if you don't spend enough time with them on the, you know, they can spin themselves into a, just, you know, a frenzy or start, you know, getting, kind of losing, losing their focus or their direction. So I think, you know, for me, they're all individual. In general, then my goal is to try to kind of allow people coach them into a, a place of self-reliance where they can become almost their own coach. And I put myself in a situation where my role as a coach changes as we go from the, the first part of our work together through the middle and then towards the end. 
So on the front end, they obviously need a little more face time, they need more information, they need more guidance, they need more structure. You kind of get you know to the middle, there's you know the, the touch time and the frequency between times that you see them probably can can uh, be thinned out a bit. And with the goal of, of ultimately getting to where they can become almost their own coach. I mean, you know, that would be the, the ultimate goal with me would be to coach myself out of the coaching role with them and put myself in a different, you know, where I, my relationship with them changed. My role as a coach changes, you know, as they, as they evolve as a player. I think that happens a good bit on tour. Don't you agree that like after, you know, you start with a player and a lot of it is giving them an analysis of what's not working and why, but they're so talented. And as you go along, I mean, you're working on a lot of the same things and you're really not giving them information. So you, I think with, especially with, I mean, it's with everybody, but with tour players, I don't know that a lot of folks understand that like your role really does to me, it does change a bunch as you go along because I mean, you, you can't be giving somebody new information every time you see them, you know? I think, I think our job is to, you know, once we kind of get, if we, if we do a good job on the, on the front end of, of you know, doing our homework, try to figure out kind of the, the player's story, their background, kind of their, their analytics and, you know, their, their metrics in terms of the way they generate score and kind of what their goals are. Once we have that in place and you develop a plan, the story shouldn't change too much after that. I'm not saying you'd be completely rigid. Sometimes you have to adapt. Right. But part of coaching is telling the player the same thing over and over long enough until they can kind of figure out how to onboard it, you know, make it their own. And so I think, you know, it's really, I think it's really important once you kind of get onto something not to bounce too much. I think I've, I've, I've you know, I've, I've done it myself before, you know, when I was first kind of getting started in this business, I'd, you know, I'd, I would not stick to my plug yeah. to the play sheet and I would bounce it when things got a little bit bumpy. But I, I've gotten to the point where, you know, I'm, I'm confident enough now that, okay, if we all sit down in the front of this thing, we agree that this is the direction we're going to go. We're going to have some good days and some bad days, but our job is just, is to keep doing the same thing long enough until you can develop some mastery about it. Yeah, I found that, you know, I did the same early, especially the first time you start teaching tour players and good players, like inevitably they're going to hit a bump in a road. But when it's your first time going through it, it's kind of, you know, it's different. I mean, and I don't want to say scary, but like, you know, you, you don't want to fail. And so to me, you know, that was why I would panic and I would change direction or I would try something different. And then I realized, heck, I got fired that way too. So I might as well stick, you know, stick to what the plan was and what I know. And I agree a hundred percent. I think as you go along, you become more determined and rigid in the right word, but more determined and committed to whatever it is, the plan you've come up with to stick with and to not wander or panic just based on whatever happened this last week when they played. Yeah. I think they're really the best coaches. I mean, one thing that they're not is reactive. They don't, they're not reactive to the environment. They're able to, to say, okay, we've done our homework. We know what we're doing. We've got a great plan. We know what the goals are. We've got a process in place, and there may be something that happens that, that kind of knocks us off balance, but we're based on unless there's some sort of compelling reason that we should, you know, pivot or move a different direction, the idea is to be non-reactive and just say, you know something, yeah, I acknowledge that that was a bad moment. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. We've got to get back up on the horse, and we've got to keep going, you know. So it's, it's just the non-reactivity of a coach is imperative around these tiers because the environment's just so charged up with, you know, emotion and, and react, you know, the, the, there's just there's a ton of reactivity in the environment. So I think part of the role of the coaches is, is is to be hold that non-reactive place where they can they can there's some sense of stability, you know, in the midst of all that chaos. Right, and I, and I think that the majority of players, especially as you go up the ladder, but I think they love and really like the fact that you're like a calm port in the storm, right, Correct. and that you're objective. And that, you, you know, and that I think they love that stability because they don't always get it. 
themselves or they don't always get it at home and different things, right? And so I think that they, they welcome that. I think that's a valuable lesson for people coaching players of all ability is you've got to be, you've got to be the calm person. And I mean, I'm Italian and fiery as can be. And I get, you've heard me get pissed and blast people, but like, you know, when it comes to your guys or your players, you've got to be the non-reactive calm person that's objective and it is a rock that they know they can count on. I think so. I mean, I think that's a, that's a quality of, you start looking at the really, you know, most of the exceptional coaches in all sports have that sense of calm, you know, the, the kind of that calmness, the eye of the storm, the, the kind mm-hmm. of that, that, that presence about them. So that when things go off the rails, I mean, they're still, they're still able to operate and make, you know, good decisions and stick to the playbook and, you know, keep, keep forging ahead so they can kind of get through the storm. So, you know, you look at Coach Wood and you look at, you know, I mean, you go down the list of great coaches. I would, I would say that reactivity is not something that you see a lot of it in elite coaching. So you brought up other sports. Well, I wanted to pick your brain on because I think we had dinner at the U.S. Open, and we were talking about a bunch of things, and you were, we were talking about different sports and different things. So you were recently were at the Olympics. And to me, like a lot of our coaching and stuff that we're learning and doing is maybe catching up to other sports and what they've done in other realms. What did you see – yeah, to me, being inside the arena, being inside the ropes at the Olympics, and then just being around all these great athletes had to be an incredible environment to be submerged in to learn more about what we're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm an Olympic freak. I mean, I've some a lot of the stuff that I've tried to I've tried to kind of take on from as a coaching perspective is is you know come out of Olympic sport. You know, I've, my really my first kind of dose of really good sports science came from the world triathlon, and I mean. You talk about you know cycling and running and swimming at the Olympic level. Their their level of sports science is, was ridiculous compared to what we were doing in golf. And so I took a lot of the things that I learned, you know, just in terms of just the general approach they took and the way they would apply science and and, and you know build programs around it. You know, I, that, I took a lot of that on, you know, when I was really starting to try to become more of a high performance coach. So you know, being at the Olympics, I you know I I've told you before, Tony, I, that I my life feels a bit like Forrest Gump. I mean, I just stumble along and I wake up in these moments. Well, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I woke up and I was at the Olympics. I mean, and how in the hell do you get to the Olympics? You know, at 60 years old. Right. So anyway, I'm finding myself in this environment, you know, surrounded by all these, these people that, you know, that's, that have made all these sacrifices over the last four or five years to put themselves in position to be able to go meet this competition and compete. And, um, you know, I had a high expectations going across, and I can tell you that my Olympic experience, you know, far exceeded any expectations that I would have. And I would, I would hope that anybody's listening to this, if you ever get a chance to go to participate, to to be around that that environment, you, you owe it to yourself to take the time to go do it. It was just a magnificent experience. I think the players found that out too, don't you? You know, you you heard a lot of. I think Rory was quoted saying, "Like you went in and." Maybe they weren't, some of them weren't as fired up because, like, they didn't grow up with golf being part of the Olympics. None of us did. And everything was geared around the majors. But I think that the players, everything I've heard is were blown away by the experience of being involved in that and what that meant to be part of. And I think it's such a cool thing to be part of. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I think that the thing that I got a sense of is, you know, you people are there, there's no money involved, right? So it's all just right. playing for just, 
just for, to represent your country. And you get the sense that everybody that was there was so happy to, to be able to do that, to be able to kind of go represent their country and wrap that flag around their shoulders and go out there and, and push against these other people. And they, along with that, you get the sense that the, that the players also recognized that there was a tremendous amount of sacrifice that had taken place for the people that had come before them to give them that opportunity. And then you also compile that with this idea, a lot of these athletes in some of these sports had waited four or five years to compete, so the amount of sacrifice they put out was, was also, you know, just to a super high level. So there's a sense of humility and grace with, with the people at the Olympics that, are, that is so unlike anything I've ever seen. I mean, it's one thing to get, to get ready to, you know, to work and try to get your tour card, and you get your tour card. I mean, that, that's great. And, and, you know, to go out and play and win a tournament and win a major, that's all lovely stuff. But this, this Olympic thing is like a, on a totally different level. It just, there's, it's like all that magnified, if you can imagine it. And it may be just the, the fact that we haven't been in that space very often and just the rareness of it. Right. But the magnitude of the sense of, of appreciation and humility and grace with the athletes and the coaches and everybody that's involved was like nothing I've ever seen. It was so cool to watch. and. I mean, I, I think I think some of it is the newness, but I also think some of it is that it only happens every four years. Like, you know, as, as important as the majors are, like we know that in, what, seven months we're going to have to start another string of four, you know? Um, and, and uh, you know, as important as they are and as, as attached as we are to them, and I think the fact that it's only every four years is, and then it's for your country and no pay, I think, makes it extra special. I want to keep picking your brain on coaching. What are some things that we can do as coaches? What are some things you see us changing as coaches that are going to help us develop better players coming down the pipe in the future? I think really it's going to have to do with, you know, us focusing on, unfortunately, a lot of the, the golf in the, in the U.S., and particularly start kind of looking, let's just talk for a little while about kind of the uh, youth golf movement. So a lot of youth golf is specifically kind of generated first around participation and trying to develop, you know, as many players as possible. But shortly after puberty, you know, there's a, there's a couple of different pathways that emerge. You have these recreational players that end up kind of hopefully keeping them around, letting them kind of play. And then we have kind of more of a high performance or a competitive pathway that emerges. And so I don't think that trying to push kids down a high performance pathway until they're past puberty is a good idea. Uh, none of the sports science would support that. I think we do that some, well, a lot of times. I mean, the idea that there's an eight-year-old world champion drives me crazy. Uh, I just don't think that's healthy for anybody. In a lot of countries, they won't even allow it. Uh, like Golf Australia, they, they just won't let their kids even think about participating in a, a world event until they're 15, 16 years old. Kind of that's going the forward. opposite of so many of these things over here now, though. Don't yeah, you well, think? I mean, like, yeah, well, I think we're, we're in a, kids that are you know, nine playing in a world golf. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that have played. 200 tournaments by the time they're nine years old, you know, and have, have five, you know, have a hundred trophies in their room, you know, I think I, and while all that's lovely, the, the problem is, is that, you know, the, the kids that, that perform the best performers earlier sometimes aren't the, aren't the best, you know, they're don't turn out to be the best players long-term. They may be just that they're bigger and stronger. Maybe, you know, someplace in their, in their, you know, one year of development in terms of, and there's all sorts of kind of studies that, like soccer and hockey, where the kids that make the national team, 80% of them were born in the first three months of that, the calendar year that they qualify in. So let's say we're talking about 12-year-olds. 80% of the kids that make the national squads, international squads, are born in the first three months of that cycle. Yeah. So that tells us that, you know, relative age is, is you know, is, is important, right? There's also, you've got early and late development just in general. So you have, let's say you've got a 12-year-old, you know, statistically you could have 
a kid that there's a group going to be a group of kids that be probably two years underdeveloped, and they're probably more like ten year olds. And you're going to have a couple, another group of kids are going to be, you know, probably two years over, you know, early developers. So they're going to be like fourteen year olds. And so the the difference in that we see in those, in the, you know, even in like twelve year olds is staggering. And so, you know, what we get into in this country, it's about, you know, it's really about competition. It's a very com- mm-hmm. competition-based model, and we focus on – so it sets itself up easily for, for fast-tracking, which is moving kids down the track too fast. You know, you see a kid's a pretty good player at nine years old. Next thing you know, it's the parents have them playing against the 14- and 15-year-olds, which is just like the worst thing ever, right? Right. Going up there and hopping the pool with them periodically is good, but the scarring that that does to a, to a kid, you know, is, is just, just not good. The funny thing about, about Olympic athletes also is that some of your best top performers are, are the late developers. And so the thing we have to be careful with golf in this country is if we're going to focus on, on development, we also have to make, find some sort of way to keep those, those kids that are in the, the non-competitive side of that, of that league, give them an opportunity to continue to compete. So like an intramural system for them to kind of continue to compete because you never can tell. Sometimes one of those kids out of that other side is playing soccer and swimming and doing five other sports may latch on to golf when he's 16 or 17 years old and become a Brooks Kepka, right? That a lot of the, we see a lot of the, a lot of the athletes today are multi-sport athletes. You know, they've come up, they've come from other sports and weren't even any good at golf until they were 16, 17, 18 years old. So I think that's, you know, we have to start thinking about, okay, what are, you know, the way we set this thing up. I, in a perfect world, I think that probably was, you know, the, the, the pre-tibetan stuff would be really more built on physical literacy and trying to get kids to move and play a lot, a lot of different sports and have golf be part of their of their sports menu, not the only thing. So I think early specialization is like a bad, really bad idea. Once they get past puberty, being able to have you know the right developmental channels in place for the kids that choose to compete, but also keeping some mural type activities involved so that those non those kids that are playing some other sports have an opportunity to keep their hands on a golf club and, and keep become you know continue to kind of hang around in the game is it you know because sometimes you know they're going to they might jump across the line a little bit later so i i think the structure of the way we, we look at all that i think we could we could take it do a better job of the you know of, of having programming and you know at a national level to support these ideas that are founded in sports science i mean i just i didn't make this stuff up this is just me studying kind of what the what the experts say right i want to take what you just said and play it to parents too i get so many parents that when their kid isn't the best player at 14 or 15 years old or 16, and they're like, I mean, my kid doesn't have a chance. <laughs> He's just not any good. And it's like the number of kids that I've taught or seen that weren't great players at 14, 15, 16, 17, maybe went to a small college, and then turn out to be fantastic players and play on the PGA Tour, it's unbelievable how many of those kids get really good late. And I always tell parents, like, you just never know with a player – when the light bulb is going to go off and they figure their deal out. Yeah, I think, you know, if you look at, once again, going back to the Olympic kind of Olympic committee, kind of Olympic sports science data, you can be a junior Olympian through your 23rd year. So 23 and under is considered a junior Olympian. So according to the Olympic committee, they are giving people a chance to fully develop before they start having them compete as, as adults, right? So in their mind, the full physical platform, the, you know, the kind of your brain, your nervous system, your muscles, the hormones, all the all the systems aren't fully developed until you're 23 or 24. So my goal with a young player is try to make sure that by the time they're 23 or 24, they've got a good full toolkit. So if they decide they want to take it on at that point in time, they've got the right tools in place, 
Uh, they've done their developmental work to be able to, to have the bandwidth to be able to kind of go in there and, and if they decide they want to do that, they've got the right tools in their toolkit. So if I got a kid at 14, that's 10 years down the road. I mean, that's a long right. time, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, the scariest kids in my program are seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old kids that are really good and winning a bunch of tournaments already. Because I'm trying to figure out how the hell am I going to keep them on the pathway for 15 years, right? How do I keep? How do I keep <laughs> without without breaking them or, or you know having them? You know, I mean, 15 years is a long time. What the but hell the am I going to do with this for 15 years? But the reality of it is that's what you're what you're dealing with, and so. Taking it, you know, one year at a time and breaking it down, say, okay, this year let's get these couple, two or three things in place, and then next year we'll get two or three more things in place. Next year we'll just kind of keep building, and I think that's that's the best way to do it. You know, instead of trying to fast track them and make them a, a superstar at 12 or 13 or 14. We've got a good buddy of mine. We played together in college. His daughter's a, a good young player. But, they, you know, they got super caught up in every one of these, like, play, I mean, they're, like, they're playing, like, 20 tournaments in a summer. You know, and it's like, I mean, She's not going to play a single tournament, this was a few years ago, that matters really for five or six, seven years. Like, I mean, when when you're 30 years old, you don't look back and go, you remember that tournament I won when I was 11? I mean, nobody <laughs> does that, right? You know, you remember that time I shot 45, you know, uh, nine holes out of, you know, whatever? Like, it just doesn't happen. It's like, but it, it becomes increasingly hard with all of the stuff out there help parents and other coaches because I see other coaches get caught up in it too. And this is where coaches are listening to you and I talk, you know, like you got to be careful to not put too much emphasis on some of these tournaments when a kid either has success or doesn't have success when they're 12 years old or whatever. Well, I think the good news is I think that the PGA has has really done a great job of Mm -hmm. kind of, aligning themselves to the Olympic Committee and uh, the Aspen Institute, some of these people that have thought this thing out, and they're really starting to do education around kind of what they call the American Development Model, which is a, a long-term athlete, you know, development model for, uh, you know, we've, the PGA is doing it. And so my hope is, is, and I think the answer to the question that we've been kicking around the can all day here today is, is to have a developmental pathway that we well, you know, that, that we loosely agree on with. We think, okay, this looks reasonable, right? Whether we're going to approach this, you know, try to approach development from this perspective. You know, we've got enough sports science on board. We've got enough golf opinion about it. We, we agree that we think this is roughly kind of what it's supposed to look like, right? Not saying everybody's got to, you know, swing, you know, swing exactly the same, but that we, that we agree that we're going to follow these basic developmental principles, right? And then if we can agree with that first, educate the coaches and get the parents on board, we've got a chance. But if there's any one part of that that's not in place, I think the thing's going to fall apart. And so, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a fairly big lift. The good news is the boat's off the dock. I mean, I applaud the PGA of America for, for taking, that, taking that step and saying, you know something, we are going to align ourselves with the, with the Olympic Committee and the, and the Aspen Institute. You know, they, they were all called out, I think, in 2016 or 17 to kind of try to take this model on. The leadership of the PGA at that time and Susie Whaley, they held their hand up and said, we're in. And so I'm, I, I'm just really proud of them. And I, so it's, we, as the, the, you know, the, the people that are going to be out here in the field executing this have to up, upskill ourselves on what does that mean? And then we become the, you know, the educators for the other coaches and the parents to make sure that, because if we can get everybody on board, we've got a chance to do it. But, but, with, but if there's no pathway, if, if there's no coach education or the parents aren't educated, it's going to fall apart. So it's, a, it's like a three-pronged thing in my mind. And I think that Mm-hmm. It's really up to people like me and you to try to make sure we get the message out, you know, participate when we're asked to, to participate, to try to help, you know, do whatever whatever it is that's necessary to, 
to get the get keep this boat floating long enough until I can kind of get its own inertia and and then get some young co- coaches on board and, and some more people to help. Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree with you more too about Susie. I had Susie on tour coach a few weeks ago, and as you know, I've coached in a couple juniors with her that we coached together, and I mean. I remember she's so forward-thinking and so passionate about growing the game and making an impact. She's been awesome what she did for the PGA, and kudos to them on what they've done with this. It's been nice. Forward-thinking. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's our job as leaders is to try to figure out the path forward. Okay, what's the path forward look like? Right? So we're, it's right. currently, we're currently the torch holders. We're holding the torch. It's our turn, right? So we gotta we got to do our parts, try to – read of kind of what's happening, try to figure out where it's headed, and, and try to make some decisions that, that make sense. Yep, awesome stuff. Kevin, this has been fun. I always enjoy sitting and talking. This is just only one of two that we've actually recorded, but all of our conversations are pretty much like this. I appreciate it and continued success. And also, I'm looking forward to got some exciting stuff coming up, and we're going to do some stuff together. It's going to be fun, and looking forward to doing that with you. Yeah, Tony, hey, I really appreciate you. And before I get off, I just want to thank you for, for doing these podcasts. I mean, I know that, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that follow you and listen to you. And so uh, you're you're making the world a better place, man. And it's, it's an honor to be with you and, and to kind of be, be able to kind of team up with you to do some stuff going forward. It should be a blast. So thanks so much for inviting me on. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Tour Coach. I want to take a minute and thank Cordy Walker and Golf Science Lab, as well as my sponsors, Shrikshan, Buick, Bushnell and Vineyard Vines for helping make all of this possible and helping me share my insights with you. If you like what you've heard, why don't you check out more on the Dew Sweepers channel on YouTube as well as the Dew Sweeper on Instagram or go to dewsweepersgolf.com to find out more about my teaching, my travels, and where you can find out more about me.